Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, ad-free, listener-supported podcast. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, folks. Uh, Today, we have an interview with friend of the show, Bill Lasher, who spoke with me a while ago about his first book, Eve of a Hundred Midnights, and he is back to talk about his new book, The Golden Fortress, which is about something I had never heard of. Basically, the LAPD in California during the Dust Bowl trying to keep migrants out of the state. It was like an internal hardened border within the United States during the Dust Bowl. I had never heard of any of this prior to reading his book, and it was great to talk to him, and it was great to talk to him in person. Bill is a fellow Portlander, and this interview might sound a little different because we actually spoke together in the same room, which was a joy to finally do again. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope you do as well. Uh, Here we go with Bill Lasher. Bill Lasher, hello. Hi, nice to see you, Joe. You as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and in person. This is a rarity. It's my pleasure. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, don't worry. It's totally fine. You are the guest. You're the guest here. And um, you're talking about your new book, The Golden Fortress. Um, First thing I like to ask people when they're talking about their newest work is Mm -hmm. like, what's the broad overview of it? What's your like elevator pitch for this? Well, it's the story of the 1936 operation by the LAPD to deploy 136 armed officers to the borders of California, the domestic borders of California, to keep out poor Dust Bowl refugees and other domestic migrants from the state of California in an effort to combat what was portrayed to be and perceived to be an invasion or an influx or some other threatening term of uh, migrants or crime, uh, but really was part of a continued effort to define who is and who is not allowed to be part of California. And I think it's more broadly, uh, even than that, it's a book about belonging and how we say who belongs and who doesn't belong and how we continue to sort of fight over belongingness. Uh, This surprised me because it was a domestic American law enforcement uh, body going to state borders and keeping people out. And one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading the book is, uh, can they do that? Did they actually have any legal authority to do that? Like, is that allowed? Well, they worked really hard to be very vague about what they were doing and the intentions of what they were doing. They did try to ground the operation in previous legislation in California that was on the books about um, uh, residency and... uh, who could be available to sort of benefit from the state, you know, in terms of relief or other aid from uh, public institutions. Uh, So they would use that mainly as an argument to say that they were enforcing the law, but they were very flexible about what they considered a violation of the law and very uh, circumspect and uh, what their their officers were charged with. I mean, right down to the point that in the orders outlining this blockade, each individual officer was given discretion on their own about who to stop and who not to stop. And it was all based on, you know, appearance. So it often was applied racially or in terms of the appearance of someone's car, if they looked wealthy or not wealthy, you see reports about that. So, um, 
was it legal? I mean, it, ultimately, some of these restrictions on uh, denying aid to people because of their economic status were struck down uh, by the Supreme Court, but not necessarily the way it was it was uh, enacted. And, and obviously, there are questions about jurisdiction and about who could enforce the law. One of the big conflicts in this book is about the conflict between uh, police departments and local sheriff's departments in along the border where this operation was happening. But um, the chief of police at the time, James Edgar Tugun Davis, was uh, really not concerned with whether it was legal or not. He would say again and again that, you know, he just wanted to make sure to stop this influx and he would really kind of do what he wanted if he couldn't do it uh, legally. Yeah, I wanted to take a big step back and you mentioned you mentioned James Davis. Two Gun Davis. Yes. Yeah, which is an amazing nickname. Um, but who is the they who is working? Who are the power players in Los Angeles and in California that are driving this blockade? Uh, definitely James Davis, but I mean, he's in some sense, you know, uh, an operative of these other power players. You have the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce at the time, which really drove this effort by uh, operating uh, by working actually with Davis's police department to declare a quote transient emergency when uh, the uh, federal government ended one of its New Deal programs that aided uh, transients and helped pay for transient relief. Uh, so yeah, the Chamber of Commerce of Los Angeles was a major player. The of the Los Angeles Times was huge in this, and Los Angeles Times even to the point of huge in getting James Davis his job because. Uh, at the time of the 1933 mayoral election in L.A., Frank Shaw, who was mayor at the time, uh, was elected, uh, was possibly not a citizen of the United States because he had uh, come to the U.S. from uh, Canada with his family and may not have ever got citizenship. And the L.A. Times was you know, ready to blast that story open unless uh, Shaw worked with... Uh, the Times publisher, Harry Chandler and others to create a, you know, to put in a police commission that was more aligned with its interests and do some other things aligned with the uh, Times's interests. Um, so you have the, the Times being a major player. Uh, you have others in California, big, you know, I talk about in the book, these social organizations like the Friday Morning Club of Los Angeles, which was uh, society women that were the, uh, often the spouses of business owners and real estate developers um, and another group called the uh, Native Daughters of the Golden West, which was sort of a fraternal organization for women who could trace their uh, lineage to the first, as they would say, the first settlers of California, or the first colonizers of California, uh, who wielded a lot of power. I mean, the Attorney General of California at the time was a Native son, which was the partner organization. Um, so you had a lot of the sort of same kind of um, wealthy, white, Anglo-Saxon uh, sort of power brokers that you might have in other parts of early 20th century American history, um, but really amplified. I mean, Los Angeles was in the early, in the early 20th century a very conservative city uh, politically and, and a very uh, anti-union city and to the point that there was significant union strife and that was one thing that elevated James Davis to power um, and uh, very much a pro-business city. Um, I was actually sort of surprised reading that, not 
not just because of like the cultural place that LA has for us now as like this bastion of like West Coast liberalism and the like, right. yeah. um, but also because Hollywood um, is very much a union town. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised by a lot of the, um, not surprised, that's the wrong way to put it, but I was struck by uh, the amount of anti-communism that seemed to be animating a lot of these power players. Um, what role did opposition to communism play in their politics? Well, just like today, I mean, communism and socialism was used as a uh, slur to kind of mark anybody who was challenging the status quo in Los Angeles, particularly James Davis, you know, so for, to the point at which, you know, he would call intermarriage part of a Soviet plot because he alleged that uh, young Russian women were attracting African-American men to rile them up about uh, race issues in California specifically. Uh, that wasn't the only issue there. I mean, for example, the Los Angeles Times had, of course, uh, uh, been a uh, victim's a weird word, but maybe because people were killed, you know, of a bombing in, in the teens that, um, I may have that wrong about the dates, actually. I didn't go too deeply into the union stuff, but, um, okay. you know, th- because of this bombing at the LA Times and because of other strife over unions in the past, um, by the 1930s, there was a lot of anxiety about sort of renewed labor unrest. And of course, during the Great Depression, there's a lot of concerns about what is going to happen at the time. And there are a variety of different uh, efforts to bring public relief and public aid to Los Angeles, just like in other cities in the U.S. Um, Not all of them, you know, based political efforts on, um, you know, labor union based, but all could be judged from that lens of like, okay, you're kind of trying to shake things up and this is a threat to our power. There's just... I think really though it's just reactionaryism you know it's a lot of fear and there's a lot of people in the country who are concerned about whether they will be safe and there are people there who are playing on that fear i was struck by a lot of the um just immense anti-communism even in the face of ascendant fascism yes and like reading this book you you know how this is going to go america is going to go to war with nazi germany um, and suddenly being anti-fascist is going to become the thing to do if you're an American. But they didn't see that as the major competing ideology, it seems. It seems a lot of these like business conservatives um, are pretty blithe about the actual threat and are up in arms about, you know, Upton Sinclair running for office, for instance. Right, and the Sinclair election, or the Sinclair campaign in 1934 is a major driver. I mean... Right down to the point where, and I found this very late in the research for this book, that this particular rhetoric, where one of the charges uh, against Upton Sinclair, who of course was the Democratic nominee in 1934 and had previously uh, been a member of the Socialist Party. I don't quite, again, I'm not going to get the party right, but uh, Greg Mitchell wrote a great book called The Campaign of the Century about this. Um, you know, one of the charges was that he was going to let hundreds of thousands of indigent transients into the state and, and f- just completely amplify the uh, supposed transient crisis in California. And he was going to turn the state communist. And uh, so a lot of different forces worked together to reelect Frank Miriam, who was uh, in 1930, at the beginning of 1934, was the uh, lieutenant governor of California and uh, had been elevated after the uh, previous governor 
had had a, uh, I think it was a heart attack, might have been a stroke, um, in office and died. And that left Frank Miriam, who was, I think it should be noted, from Long Beach, which is just next to Los Angeles and another major city, you know, so another Southern California power player um, in charge. And when there is the uh, waterfront strike in San Francisco in 1934 that, you know, threatens to shut down the entire city in June of 1934, Frank Marion deploys the National Guard to help quell that. And so that sort of solidifies this sense of him doing something against this, again, perceived communist uh, uh, threat. And James Davis, uh, an ally of his named Louise Ward Watkins, who was a uh, woman from Pasadena and the daughter of an executive from uh, Henry Huntington's company. And she, uh, Louise Ward Watkins would later be a, a senatorial candidate in California, but uh, they go on these speaking tours about this perceived threat of California, of communists to California, particularly to Southern California. And they talk about, um, James Davis gives a speech in which he describes communism as the nexus of crime, which I don't quite know what he means by the nexus of crime, <laughs> but his claim is that this alleged major crime wave that's happening in 1934 with, you know, gangsters across the country is all part of this broader communist plot meant to, again, destabilize California and U.S. democracy beyond. And, uh, you know, and as he puts it on behalf of the Soviets with, you know, without much evidence. And because of that, yeah, there's much more attention being put on the uh, perceived communist threat, even as, and, you know, historians like Stephen Ross with his book, um, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, the name of it, but it's, uh, you know, it's about, uh, the fight against the um, Nazi saboteurs in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's called Hollywood Spies. And it's, um, you know, it's about a network of Jewish investigators un- working undercover to take down these Nazi and Nazi-aligned groups uh, in it, before the war. You know, as, as, as Ross details and as some of the research I did in some similar materials details, James Davis was much more willing to put attention and resources on perceived communist threats than actual Nazi threats. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the state of play there. And, it, you know, that will come up again and again. I mean, there's no one really loving the fascists explicitly and openly at this period. Mm-hmm. But there's certainly not much concern in the same way. Yeah. We haven't gotten to the folks who are trying to come into California yet. Right. So I think a lot of people might be broadly familiar with the Dust Bowl and that it happened. Um, they might have like, read Grapes of Wrath during high school or seen that famous picture of the migrant woman or whatnot. Um, but I'll confess that um, I was actually, until I read your book, a little unclear as to what actually caused it. So yeah, what was the Dust Bowl? What caused it? And why did people have to move out? Yeah, I mean, I was I was also somewhat unclear before I did this work and some other work I've done on Great Depression stuff in recent years. But um, I mean, it's an environmental catastrophe. It's mm-hmm. a early example of uh, a man-made or at least a man-accelerated uh, environmental crisis that has caused uh, environmental migration, uh, but it's also an economic migration. And so. You know, it has a lot of different roots, but it has roots in homesteaders coming out west to places like Oklahoma and Kansas and Nebraska, northern Texas and Colorado to uh, uh, 
to farm, you know, uh, to given land into untouched land and quote unquote. Yeah. And uh, over time, so by around the time of World War One, uh, their turn to first, you know, crops to supply, say, cotton for uniforms and other crops that are now, you know, becoming unavailable because of World War One. And then after the war, production methods are accelerated. Uh, so they can produce more, and especially as you know, parts of Europe remain sort of a little sort of unfarmable because of uh, damage from the wars, or even you know, uh, lead poisoning and chemical poisoning and other other physical damage to land. Coupled with like mechanization that is focused much more on rapidly using the land rather than replanting and uh, you know, uh, planting crops that are appropriate for the land. So. This has the effect of loosening the topsoil on the land, and I'm going to get the science of this probably a little off, but essentially loosening the topsoil, topsoil at the same time um, starting to starve the land of various nutrients to you know for production and other materials that will that for history has held the soil in uh, because native native grasses and native uh, plantings would are what are keeping it from being eroded. Um, so. That's happening, and then at the same time, and then starting in the early 30s, a series of droughts and uh, intense heat and intense windstorms caused by some of these climatic com- con- conditions uh, are causing, you know, wind. You know, again, you're looking at the Great Plains and so you have winds going all across the Great Plains, all the way up into the, you know, the Rockies. So that's sweeping off this topsoil that normally would have been held on by the native plants. But because the ground is so loose and because there's this other plants there and it's ground that's not being tilled and planted and tilled and planted every year, the soil's just loose. So it gets swept up into the sky. It starts these massive dust storms that are, again, giving it the Dust Bowl name that can you know, blot out the sun and get everyone's homes and hurt animals and hurt infrastructure, hurt houses and vehicles and, and whatnot. Um, and in the same period, it's you know, the people that were working the land who may have rented these farms and may have uh, had to sell their their land to corporate interests and other interests, larger banks and other people as the farm becomes less and less productive over time, you know, are seeing these impacts accelerate. And with, they're not able to farm and are not able to farm with as high margins as they had been. So, they have no other options after their farms are foreclosed upon or their rent comes due and they can't pay it. So they move west and they start looking for other farming opportunities and become you know, itinerant farm workers. At the same time, we have something of a labor shortage in California, even though it's the Great Depression, because the one of the first efforts of the Hoover administration early in the Great Depression was to, in concert with some of these same city Chamber of Commerce figures in Los Angeles and others to deport hundreds of thousands of Mexican Americans or people of Mexican descent, uh, Mexican citizens who are working as immigrants and and farm workers in California. However, it also targets, again, Mexican Americans, even if they are U.S. citizens, just anyone who looks to be uh, from Mexico or other non-white countries in, and also not just from uh, Central and South America but also from Asia so you have play, people who had been working for um, you know working the farms in California for generations suddenly not there and at the same time you have these 
larger centralized industrial farms that are that need the labor that no people need labor and are going to pay wages far less to these people coming out from Oklahoma and Arkansas and Kansas and in the Midwest uh, to work on their farms because they need work uh, at you know, pennies on the dollar of what the people they're replacing were paid. So when they come to the U.S., uh, when they come to California, they're in much greater need of relief than they might have been had they been paid, you know, sufficient wages. Yeah, yeah. So the LAPD is dispatched to keep people out. Mm -hmm. And something I was wondering about, let's say that you're a migrant Mm -hmm. and you come to a border checkpoint. um, You're trying to get into California. You're hoping to find work there, some kind of better, uh, like your better situation. What is it like for you? And is there anything you could do or say that it would go well for you? Uh, Well, the first thing is uh, you better not have a criminal record. And by criminal record, I mean, you better not even have been arrested. Okay. And you don't have to have been convicted of a crime. If this is at a time when there's finally some efforts to nationalize criminal records going on with that early stage of the FBI, there's... Yeah, don't they don't they have um, the first generation of teletype machines? Yeah, they're using point? teletype machines. They're, they're printing the... Rec- you know, they're doing... A, every person who comes through one of these checkpoints is checked against a data... Well, I guess it's a database, but like a... So their records are sent to, um, I believe, it's to headquarters in Los Angeles, to the FBI in Washington... And I believe, and I think one's kept either at on-site, maybe it's sent to Sacramento. Um, but again, they'd be checked against warrant books that they have. And, it, and um, if there's a warrant for someone's arrest, if there's a criminal charge, if they can dig up anything that says, again, if you've even spent a night in jail just on the detention, you know, you, you're considered a quote-unquote criminal. So first you got to make sure you don't, you know, you can't be found out that way. And this is also a time, I should say, of some of the first fingerprinting to identify people. This is actually happening mm-hmm. in concert with a statewide fingerprinting campaign. Um, they're likely to, um, you know, you have to have either a promise of work, uh, you know, written promise of work in California, proof of residence in California, and proof that you can say sustain yourself. So if you don't have promise of work, you have to have proof that you have enough means. So I think it was $50 was the minimum uh, either on you or I guess documented in some way that you had to have and um i i don't know if people were rifling through detainees uh wallets <laughs> uh but you know one of the things that that was that would happen is you, you know you might want to get in a shiny packard or something like some new car and just going in a fancy new car or go on a, a bus because these um the, these patrols were only stopping passenger automobiles pedestrians and trains and so um, there weren't that much. There wasn't that much bus travel, but it did exist. But you would have had to have a lot of money to afford the ticket for the bus, um, or, or comparatively a lot of money. Um, some of them might have been looking for work. Some of them might have been cycling through various planting seasons from farm to farm as the season shifted. You know, may have been coming from Arizona, where there was also some pretty good weather at certain times of year to do farms. So they may have stopped in Arizona, worked for a couple seasons, then come to California, then maybe come up here to Oregon. Um, but you know couldn't prove any of that you had a choice you had a choice of going to jail and getting Mm -hmm. a charge that again even if not convicted the next time you tried to enter the state you now have a criminal record in this operations determination uh and so therefore if you're found trying to enter the state again you would be charged as a criminal having tried to enter the state uh which would bring greater charge but you could try to enter the state 
Um, I mean, you could, you could go serve some time in jail. Some cases work on some quarry rock crews or other service crews. Um, I wasn't able to find the documentation that I wanted to find but to really support this, but there were claims that James Davis actually used some of the work to um, help build the Los Angeles Police Academy, which was sort of uh, <laughs> an expansion of this pistol and rifle gun club uh, in the hills above downtown Los Angeles, uh, just next to where Dodger Stadium is today, uh, that he loved and had all social meetings at. Unfortunately, um, I, found, I couldn't find anything that documents that that actually happened beyond a couple news reports. Um, but there were rock quarry crews. And uh, your other choice, if you didn't want to be arrested, was to turn around. But the thing is, California's border crossings, especially at state lines, are almost all in really remote, forbidding places. I mean, uh, maybe the least forbidding is the coastal entrance on um, from Brookings, Oregon, you know, on Highway 1. But it's still very far away from everything. It's just nicer weather, you know, but anywhere else, you know, Modoc County where much of the action in this book takes place was in the middle of a pretty brutal winter. You have the Mojave desert, you have uh Truckee, California, where there had been the Donner party, you know, 50, 80 years before this. Right. And <laughs> it's, and this is happening in February, March, April, you know, so it's time when there's a lot of snow. I mean, some of the crossings had no action because they were snowed in. So, Turning back, especially if you've spent every last penny you had just to get to California, could be fatal or at least, you know, destructive. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the challenges of writing a book like this about people who are already living uh, very challenging lives is that their records are far fewer and far between than the institutions involved and the high-profile figures involved because they're not necessarily going to keep records of the fact they got turned away. So proving, you know, what the experience, or at least writing as a re as an author, what the experience of, uh, un I don't want to say undocumented in the sense of like citizenship, undocumented in the sense of people who aren't keeping lots of records about themselves and aren't necessarily mm -hmm. writing home because they have no home about you know, what their experience is means that you don't have the same kind of documentary evidence a historian might use in other cases. So it's hard to note exactly what the experience was, save for people like John Steinbeck. You know, you mentioned the Grapes of Wrath. You know, he also wrote a series of uh, newspaper articles that actually informed some of the writing in Grapes of Wrath, uh, collected as a volume called the, currently called the Harvest Gypsies. At the time, it's called Their Blood is Strong, um, that describes, including in one, one article about this blockade itself, but what it means to get across. You have uh, the California State Relief Commission uh, com sending out some uh, investigators in the time of this blockade to sort of understand the experience of um, of transients in California. You know, these are social workers who go and like go down to encampments of people, and so that's one th another thing people are doing. They're building camps on the borders, or building camps in riverbeds, and uh, you know, un abandoned buildings, anywhere they can find shelter and resources to stay alive. There are federal transient migrant camps that will get set up. Um, but at this point, those haven't completely been, you know, the programs, that part of the New Deal is not quite in action. Uh, there are certainly some people who are criminals who are trying to get across, but I mean, it's just like there are certainly some criminals within the state already, you know, and that's something, a point that's made by one of the sheriffs who opposes this is that, you know, we have enough criminals from California going elsewhere as there are coming in here. Um, I, I mean, 
I guess it's just like anything is they're they're trying to find any means they can to get by or trying to survive where they are. Yeah. So this blockade happens for a relatively short amount of time. Right. Yeah. Uh, what ends up happening to it? I, it peters out in part for due to lack of resources, uh, in part due to, I think, some of the challenges that was was not expected. Um, you know, they entered the blockade claiming support from every single sheriff of every single border county in the state <laughs> of California, and they did not have that support and were told as much. They didn't expect there to be quite the media attention to that fact. Uh, there was at least one court challenge that ended up getting... Uh, quashed uh, in a way that I describe in greater detail in the book um, by one person who was arrested. Um, There also was simply a change of seasons. And there's a, you know, the part of the year this is happening is when it's not a great growing season in other parts of the country. And come spring, uh, some of the people who might not have, might have tried to come to California might have found work elsewhere once you know, the weather allowed and there was seasonal agricultural labor. And by the next year, uh, law enforcement in California, there was attempts to do, there was a limited blockade started in October of 1936. There's a talk of another blockade by the end of uh, 1936 that would be, again, more limited involving fewer counties, but uh, some political shifts in Los Angeles County and some more pressures on law enforcement as well as other law enforcement priorities by then. Uh, would shift the resources available for another blockade. And within a short period of time, uh, all the people directly behind it uh, would be out of office. Um, But again, that's one of those spoilers. I mean, it's not too spoilery, but it's part of the book that I'm not going to mention. But I think, you know, if you ask me, I think the combination of factors is um, unexpected scrutiny, the seasonal roles, and then the timing of those, of the seasonal impact of this labor with, uh, uh, events that happen when the time the labor would be needed again comes back. I, I love it when uh, historians and authors talk about spoilers for something yeah, that yeah. happened like in real life in history. Yeah, but I I, I get your meaning. Um, what surprised you when you were working on this book? I mean, the first thing that surprised me was sort of what you got to at the beginning of this interview was the uh, intensity and just explicit of that anti-communism. I mean, I always knew about the Red Scare, both the McCarthyite Red Scare and the 30s Red Scare. I knew it existed. But just how directly and uh, uh, sort of exaggeratedly they described some of these threats. And um, I think being able to now look at a lot of newspaper sources and other primary sources, you know, in high volume um, than you might have been able to do even a couple decades ago, uh, allows you to see that rhetoric in sort of a more broad and full way. Um, you know, and then at the time you're not seeing all these things happen at once. I think another thing that, uh, that surprised me was how familiar both the rhetoric and the charges and the, um, the schemes were to the present and Mm. it, it both, uh, encourages me and saddens me because it so it saddens me for obvious reasons some of the stuff in this so we're, where we're not paying attention to certain threats and we're not taking seriously certain threats while we're sort of dramatically sort of creating enemies and fears and and casting people off as as threats um is sort of just too familiar I'm, let alone the sort of anti-democratic threads that exist in both both periods it's certainly depressing 
I'm encouraged by the fact that like this happened and we got through it. And so it makes me feel like any of the challenges we face today are not maybe as daunting as they might be because a lot of it is so familiar versus something new to us. Yeah. Um, I mean, other threat, I mean, I think the other surprise and is just how politicized the police department was at the time and mm. how much of a tool of those power structures we talked about earlier were and some of the stuff that I don't get into in great depth in the book just because I had to focus it is just about the uh, sort of explicit defense of the status quo that the uh, LAPD was set up to be, you know, um, and the early sort of even when there's attempts at reform of policing in the late 20s and early 30s, those are sort of. Uh, shot down by this sort of rhetoric about public safety and about what might happen in a way that sounds really familiar to sort of what's happened with the sort of arguments about defunding the police and then this, you know, sort of fear of rising crime that we're, I think we're all hearing about right now where we sort of whiplash from defunding police or, um, you know, adjusting funding of police departments to now talking about how we urgently need to add police or whatever, you know. Um, so... I think, I think just how like, uh, I think that's what's most surprising. I mean, honestly, the most surprising part is that this event even happened. And right. We're not really, right. you know, we don't really learn about it. Yeah. Uh, at the very beginning of our talk, you said that this was a book about belonging. Mm -hmm. um, could you elaborate on that maybe? Well, I talk, I mean, I, a lot of the players in this book are talking and people who are so there's this sort of sub-narrative that happens in Modoc County about, um, I'm looking at a woman who is a newspaper editor there and another newspaper editor who comes into town in the mid-1930s and sort of, she gets, she's a woman who is a member of this Native Daughters of the Golden West and is very proud of her Californianess and what is the Californianess, regardless of the fact that she and any other Americans in that area are on uh, land that once belonged to the Modoc Nation. And, and very recently to her, I mean, her mentor is a man who fought in the Modoc War and um, and that's a war that's memorialized as fighting back savage invaders you know with a mm -hmm. statue that has a monument that talks about fighting back savage invaders to these people's land even though the savage invaders were the people who lived there for 13 millennia or more and um, so I I think it's interesting that the people who are talking now about keeping others out of California are people like her uh, people like uh, Louise Ward Watkins and people like James Davis, who came very poor into town in the early teens and um, had sort of drifted into the city looking for opportunity. And Mayor Shaw, the Los Angeles mayor, who was sort of behind this as well. Again, I mentioned he had come from, uh, you know, he'd been a Canadian immigrant. Uh, so we have all these people talking about what it means to be Californian and what it means to be a part of this golden state and, uh, and then defining this even very idea of the golden state who are themselves outsiders. And there's this constant sort of effort to discuss who is a Californian and who isn't, who belongs and who doesn't, which to me is very similar to this idea of who is American and who is not. And it is overlapped even in this case and how belongingness in a community isn't just even about where your ancestors came from, but about what you are or are not contributing to a society uh, by 
very subjective definitions. Where can people find a book? Uh, they can find it uh, anywhere books are sold. I like to buy it on Bookshop, so I can support bookshop.org, so I can support you know local bookstores that I choose. Uh, my website, golden, uh, lasheratlarge.com slash goldenfortress. Or, uh, you know, you could go to the big guys and search for it, too. Um, Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's available everywhere. And I, I, in my opinion, also, just since this is a podcast, the audiobook's really great. And I was really happy with the reading of the audiobook. So awesome. that's another opportunity. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Joe. And once again, the name of the book is The Golden Fortress. Please do check it out wherever you get books, hopefully at your local independent bookstore selling establishment. Uh, as always, the Weird History Podcast is written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Joe Streckert. Our website and logo and all of our technical stuff is by Sarah Giffro of Upswept Creative. Uh, we are available wherever you get podcasts. Give us ratings, reviews, all of that. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.